I'm so mad. I'm mad for two reasons. One, I'm mad because you weren't enough of a loser to be sitting at home during the day, uh, and now I feel like just a little bit more of a loser uh, in my youth. To be fair, let me be real. In my youth, I was very much a loser. So I'm not fronting like that's not the case. But I'm, I'm, I'm upset that y'all weren't at home watching Maury Povich and Jerry Springer when you were 18, 16, 17. Say it again. Okay, well, I'm, apparently that ain't doing nothing for you because you don't know this guy. All right, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> no, the, D- the DNA is what was hitting. The DNA is what was hitting. But here's the thing. For those of you who don't remember this guy, he's a meme now. Uh, and, and if you've seen this guy on memes and maybe you, you have heard or been able to connect some of the dots, he, um, and I got to say, when I went to go find this picture, uh, I was a little bit saddened. There were lots of disrespectful things about this man on the Internet. Uh, from no fault of his own, he was just trying to do a commercial. Um, admittedly, some of the things are funny. They're pretty good jokes out there as well. But um, he's turning a bit of a meme. Uh, a nostalgic aspect of, of a lot of people's lives who are um, sitting at home back in the year of our Lord, 2006, uh, watching Maury for those that liked the cup of tea uh, a little more subtly, or maybe even Jerry Springer who liked the cup of tea with a little more explicitness and, uh, and, and liked it, the drama right in your face. Uh, because all of you that were alive in that great period of daytime TV uh, of 2006, you remember that you were watching TV, uh, you were sitting there, you were 16, you were 13, you were maybe 20 or 25, wherever you were in that scope, right? You were sitting there and all of a sudden this guy came on your screen and the first thing he said is you're sitting on the couch, you're watching TV and your life is passing you by. And you were like, dang, this guy's hitting right from the jump. I feel it in my soul. He's right. I'm 16 and my life is passing me by. Uh, I'm 16 and I'm I'm losing. I'm losing right now. And and it would hit you like a ton of bricks, right? And the thing is, for those of you that don't know him, which apparently is everybody here, uh, this guy represented Everest College. And so he'd say, you're sitting on your couch, you're watching TV, and your life is passing you by. You say, I'm going to go to school. But don't just wait. Do it now. Pick up the phone. Do it now. What are you doing? You're wasting your life. Do it now. And it was just this aggressive commercial that really interrupted your flow of Maury and Jerry and it was just right up in your face. And here's the thing. It's funny. And if you lived through it, it's even funnier when you see a picture of him later. But it also, I mean, it, it kind of became famous for a reason. It became famous because it caught on to something that was generally like a, I mean, a, a cultural reality of the moment. And in some ways, it's a cultural reality of the day. Which is that there are people who are at home and chilling and a kind of let me make sure i got it whose life is passing them by and for a lot of people in that moment and maybe a lot of people now that brother coming up there and being like what are you doing was like oh dude what am i doing (laughs) what are you doing um and and the thing is it was actually quite helpful like people have expressed the fact that as, as funny as this guy was uh and as funny as that moment was it actually kind of was a bit of a catalyst for their life. Maybe it wasn't for Everest College. Maybe it was for something else. Maybe it was getting a job. Maybe it was getting me to do something. But it actually was a quite helpful commercial. Uh, he's done some, you know, as, as the nostalgia sets in, he's done some interviews 
uh, in the past few years that you can find on YouTube. And the thing was, is that he kind of mentioned I, I had a certain idea of what I wanted to do. I recognized that a lot of the people that were sitting at home may be a part of a culture that, that maybe wanted to feel it like it was their homeboy checking them and correcting them and saying, hey, man, out of love for you because you're my boy, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your existence? Like, you have gifts, you have abilities, you have opportunities. Do something. And despite its comedy, it had an actual impact on a lot of people. You may be asking, what are you, why are you talking about this guy? Why are you spending so much time talking about the Everest College guy? Here's why, because I want you to go to, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, what, what, I, what I am saying is that this type of correction is not bad. In fact, what we're going to cover today in the book of Hebrews is actually a bit of a pause in the middle of a bigger theological narrative uh, where the author, who was really last week, started up on the big theological idea that's kind of kind of set the pace for the, I mean, the rest of the middle section of the book, which is Jesus is our high priest. If you missed that last week, I encourage you to go. I very much enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and then that's what really we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. But before he jumps into that, or he or she jumps into that, uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, uh, they stop and kind of give this harsh correction right before they move into the rest of it. And it comes like a startling, like just bath of cold water. But once we understand what's happening in it, it actually is a very loving, a very loving correction, a very loving invitation to take inventory of one's life and a very loving moment of where someone kind of like in, in the sense and in the same style as the, as the Everest dude to kind of lovingly say, hey, Let's pause for a second. I want you to deeply consider where you are. Not because I don't care, but because I, I want you to feel like you're loved. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into that. But, but first, we're going to go ahead and read through the verses that we're going to start with, which is Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Uh, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, with us as we read this together out of reverence and respect for God's word. At the end of this, I'm going to go ahead and say this is the word of the Lord, inviting you to respond in tradition uh, with uh, thanks be to God, and then from there we'll jump in. And so if you would, uh, feel free to ring along with me or read silently or even just listen along. But Hebrews 5, starting at verse 11, reads like this. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat while I tuck away my laces so I don't kill myself. All right. So... What's happening here? Uh, first thing is that we need to readdress something that is core to this uh, message that we have said multiple times over the course of this sermon, uh, sermon series, and it's this. Big theological ideas aren't just for pastors, theologians, or fanatics. They're for normal, discouraged Christians. I, that was the first point we made in this entire sermon series. Uh, and I gotta say, I kinda did it just in passing, I was like, I, I'm gonna talk about kind of a big idea. I wanna just make that a slight point so that I can help y'all not be discouraged or not feel like, oh, okay, there's a lot of a lot of stuff. And honestly, I'm so glad that it just crossed my mind during preparation 
because it's not explicitly said in, in Hebrews, if I'm being honest. The author of Hebrews assumes that's the feeling of the person reading it, so they don't take time to say, these big ideas aren't just for super Christians, right? And, and if I'm being honest, it has been something that echoes through almost every single week, that these big theological ideas aren't just for pastors, theologians, super Christians, fanatics, they're for normal, discouraged Christians. And the reason for that is, is the point that we've mentioned as well in conjunction with this, that there are times the comfort our hearts need is the truth of who God is. That there are times in your life, discouraging moments, discouraging seasons, where what you desperately need is just the truth of who God is. And hear me, that is, I'm not in any ways trying to push to the margins or push to the side things like counseling or emotional health or psychological health. I think all those things are incredibly important. And in a lot of ways, they're working alongside of, of this idea. But this is a pretty old school idea. It is simply kind of saying, hey, there are times where the, the deep discouragement of your heart, where the answer to it may not necessarily lie in the narrative of every aspect of your life, but the answer to it may lie in the narrative of the creator and, and what he has done in your life and who he is. And so we want to start there because the thing is, Again, the author is going to address some big theological ideas, but it's more so from a corrective disposition this time. What do I mean by that? Well, you just got to read the first verse to kind of get into that, get into that rhythm. Hebrews 5.11 starts out, we have a great deal to say about this. If you remember last week, we were learning about the fact that Jesus is our high priest, our great high priest, and there's a big ton of theology in that. Um, but really, if you continued on to read, and we didn't get a chance to touch on it too, too much, uh, it, he's really noted as being an incredible high priest, not because he comes from the line of Aaron, who was the OG high priest, but because he comes from the line of Melchizedek, this incredibly, um, what, what is it called? It's almost like a, of, uh, dang it, the word was just in my mind. This figure from the Old Testament is very mysterious very mysterious figure that, that we see interact with Abraham, and um, he has these titles, and it's an incredible connection that the author of Hebrews makes here. And from that place, he says, we have a lot to say about this. And the author is going to say a lot about it. But before the author does, before he or she goes into all these things they're going to say, they make a point to stop and say, but it's difficult to explain, not because it's the most insane stuff you've ever heard, not because it's trigonometry. You can tell I'm bad at math because I'm like, the hardest math is trigonometry. And you're all like, dude. Um, not because it's rocket science, as they say, but rather because you have become too lazy to understand that the people bless you, that the readers of Hebrews from the perspective of the author are too lazy to fully consider the things that the author is about to say. And, and this is important because what the author is in essence saying is I have a lot to show you. And here's the thing, I have a lot I wanna tell you, I have big theological ideas that aren't just for Christians, super Christians, fanatics, theologians, pastors, but I have big theological ideas I want you to know and digest because they are for normal, discouraged people. But I can't, and I'm struggling to, because you think they're for fanatics, because you think they're for the the lofty, you think they're for the super Christian, and as a result, you're too lazy to engage in them. It's a hard correction right from the jump. There's big theological ideas out there that will 
calm and minister to your soul, but you were too lazy to understand him. Now, here's the thing. What does too lazy mean? That's important to stop and clarify for a minute. Let's talk about what it doesn't mean. The individuals he's speaking to, right, he's not talking about new believers. Not talking about new believers. If you are a newer believer, you're getting your feet wet in the faith. He ain't looking at you and being like, you don't know this already? What's your problem? What are you doing? You're sitting on the couch, you're watching TV, your life is passing you by, right? He's not doing you like that. He's not doing you like that. He's not talking about new believers. There's time to ramp up. We're going to see that actually in a, in a couple of verses that, that he says, man, you've been a Christian for a while. You should be teachers by now, but instead you're still munching on the basics. So he's not talking about new believers. I believe it's also fair to say he's not talking about tired believers. Like there is a very real reality where like Jesus bids us to come to him and to say, hey, if you're tired and you're burdened, come to me, I'll give you rest. And in those moments, there, there are very much so times where I, I don't always hunger and I've been tired. Um, the beginning of this year has been quite tiring for me, if I'm being honest, between like family stuff and a lot going on at, at home. And my kids have been like consistently sick too. It's been horrible. Not to mention at the end of last year, I felt like I was going to die because I got whatever flu B or whatever one is bad. Um, so the beginning of the year, I was, I mean, and even through some of recently, I've been very tired. And there are times where I'm, I'm probably as, as nerdy as I can be, I'm not longing for big theological ideas. There are times where I just want to go to Jesus and receive care from him and want to spend time with him. And so I go outside to my kid's trampoline after they're in bed and I lay on it and it has a very hammock-like experience to it. Uh, and I'm like, dude, white people got this figured out, this hammock stuff, y'all got this. This slaps, dude, all right? Um, so I lay on that, I have like an iPad, I read a book, I read the Bible, I look up. Also, there are times where in the midst of that, I put the iPad down and I look up at these flaming balls of fire in the air called stars. And I'm just like, I love you and you love me. Something so simple can minister so deeply to me. And so he's not necessarily talking about tired believers here. I think he's also not talking about those struggling to understand things. People, human beings, have varied degrees of what we would describe as intelligence, or maybe varied degrees of what, how we're capable of internalizing things. And if you're struggling, as an example, let me use this as a single example. I'm a, I'm a nerd. Like, I'm not just a theology nerd, though I am that. If you start a conversation with me and you're like, let's dip a toe into this man's wild world of theology, Mark, even Mark, is as smart as Mark is, and Mark is a brilliant man, Mark Nodin. Um, he's had moments where they try to make like a comment to me, and I'm like, 87 different points of connection here, and I go into like mad scientist mode. I was in a, I say all that to say that I was, I was in a, a class in seminary about the Trinity. Trinity is a tricky subject, real tricky subject. Uh, they say that every try, every like analogy we have for the Trinity falls apart and it's true like you will find some form of heresy and then for those of you that were super christian a few years back though this is hey that's heresy Patrick, right all that one right there with the little leprechaun uh i feel bad if he wasn't a leprechaun if he was just a little irish person but i thought he was a leprechaun um but i i right that analogy it, it's this great little video about how every analogy for the trinity breaks down in the class I'm not going to lie, they, they assigned eight books for us to read. 
as required reading for the course. I had already read seven of them. And I was like, all right, dude. I started talking to my professor about things and he was like, I'm gonna need you to not ask any questions because you're probably like three or four years ahead of a lot of people in this class and you ask questions it's not helpful, confuses people. Um, and so I was like, facts, dude. I'll just holler at you after class, dude. And he was cool about it, he did. He would talk to me about things. And I asked him one question and he was like, you know, sometimes bro, you just read too much and then it's just like you start having ideas that are like, that's nonsense. And I was like, all right, that's a good, that's a good helpful suggestion to be honest, so. But there was a, a few other people in the class that like, and I was friends with them, and they straight up were like, dude, I am not grasping any of what's been put down right now. Like they're saying certain things and it's just completely flying over my head. Right, it's like I just can't understand it. And it's like, hey, if that's you, I don't think, I don't think the author of Hebrew is talking to you either. He's not going, golly, how do you not get this? Try a little harder. That's also not who he's talking about. So he's not talking to new believers, he's not talking to tired believers, and he's not talking about those struggling to understand. So who is he or she, the author of Hebrews, who are they talking to? Well, we have it there, lazy people. What does that mean? All right, what does lazy mean? Well, this word lazy is, is in scripture. It's, it's actually only used, I think this is the only place it's used in our New Testament. It's used a couple of times, or it's used one time actually, um, in the Apocrypha, and then it's used a couple of times in early church fathers. And the thing is, is that this word, it usually means something like sluggish, but it's most often applied to work or actions. And so it's even a little bit weird to use right here because he's talking about an intellectual effort, not work or actions. And so he says, hey, individuals that are sluggish and that really are kind of taking the load off who can do something, and in the context of work, the main idea is someone that can do something, someone that can work, someone that can go the extra mile, someone that can put their hands to some type of work that needs to be done, some type of work that's available to them, but they actively in their hearts decide, I don't want to do that. That's too much. I don't feel like doing that. And so what this is meant to paint is this picture of an individual that can approach their faith more, can learn their faith more, has the ability to, the space to, but they simply look at the ideas that are in front of them, exploring faith and learning Jesus more and go, I don't feel like doing that. I don't want to do that. That sounds too much. That sounds like for nerds, X, Y, and Z. I'm not trying to do that. And here's the thing. It's a strong correction because it is tackling this idea of being lazy. It is, in fact, this man coming on your TV and going, you're sitting there on your couch watching TV and your faith is passing you by. It, it feels like that. It feels like an extraordinarily strong correction. And the thing is, the author doesn't stop at that correction, all right? The author continues in verse 12, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teaching other people the things that you don't know. You need instead someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Not solid food. You need milk. You're like a baby, bro. You're like a baby. If that doesn't capture you're sitting on your couch and your life is passing, I don't know what does. Stinging, right? Hurts you a little bit. You're like, oh, dude, get out of my Kool-Aid, dude. You need to chill, bro. Right? It's a stinging evaluation. It's a stinging correction. And this is precisely why we arrive at the first point of what we want to talk about here, which is this, that correction is not always a slight against you. Correction is not always a slight against you. 
It is easy for Christians and non-Christians alike to feel like anytime someone looks at you and says, hey, what are you doing? You're doing something wrong. I love you. You're taking L's right now. To feel like it is some type of slight against you. It is some type of thing that is going against you personally. And we take it personal and it creates disunity. We get angry about it. We're like, well, I need to talk about this and X, Y, and Z. And the thing is, there's a lot of times in your life where correction from people that love you is not a slight against you. In fact, correction from people that love you is often a loving act. It is a loving act. It is an act of care, an act of observation. It's an invitation for someone to look at you and say, hey, because I love you, because I care about you, I'm not going to leave you where you are. That is actually the fullness of a Christian faith almost summarized when it comes to the love of Jesus. There's an old phrase that says Jesus loves you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. We've heard that. If you've been in church and in faith, you've heard that a bunch. And that's true. It's true. It's why inherent to the Christian faith is an activity of people looking at one another, brothers and sisters, and saying, I want to keep you accountable. I want to correct you. I want to love you. I literally officiated a wedding on Friday wherein we talked about the fact that in Ephesians 5.22, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But the word submit is not in Hebrews 5.22. The word submit in there is implied from Hebrew, I mean, from Ephesians 5.22. It's implied from Ephesians 5.21, wherein the author of Ephesians, Paul says, I want Christians to submit to one another. And the way you submit to one another is in all facets of life, including in marriage. Wives as unto your husbands. And the word submit's not even there. It's an extension of what it means for Christians to submit to one another. What does that mean then? It actually gives you a whole different way of looking at submission from the context of a wife. Because it's not blind obedience or or just blind following direction. Because I'm going to let you know right now, I'm not doing that with you. I'm not going to follow your directions because I'm submitted to you as a Christian brother. And you shouldn't follow my word for nothing or for anything either. Rather, it's an act of sacrificially loving one another, seeing where we're going to go, seeing where we can go, and, and doing everything we can to see each other get there. That's what submission looks like. That's what it's always meant to be. It's why the vision of submission ultimately culminates in saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then after that, the crescendo remark about marriage is, this is a mystery, but it represents Jesus. It shows us Jesus. Right there, that's the whole of the Christian faith is actually a community of faith, serving one another, loving one another, building one another, not leaving us where we are, but but seeing us grow and continue forward. Right, that's what's happening here. And so correction is not always a slide against you. It's not. It's not. In fact, it's loving. If and here's the thing, I know you're having, I know that a lot of us right now, that's a struggle to hear. Because we have a difficult relationship with correction. There are individuals in here right now, like you hate being corrected. You hate it. There are also those in here that love correcting and don't love being corrected. And that doesn't show wisdom, that shows pride. And we hate being corrected. A lot of us do. We hate it. It discourages us. It makes us angry. And here's the thing. I'm not telling you this as someone that doesn't know what feeling corrected looks like. If you think I'm a pastor and therefore I don't know what correction is because people treat me differently, it's not true because I'm a 33-year-old pastor. I'm 33. Let me say it like this. The church that planted us has sent two more church plants after us, and I'm still the youngest guy from that group of 
church planter. I got a chance to talk to a guy who's considering being the fourth church planter from that group, and me and him are the same age. So they'll have planted four churches, and I'll still be the youngest dude in that group. And here's the thing. As a result, you low-key, some of y'all be looking at me like, uh, I got to test what you say, brother. I haven't earned your confidence just based on being like, I'm, I'm a pastor. Because you're like, you're also a young whippersnapper. So, I mean, give and take here, right? And that's okay. I'm earning some of that trust as is healthy and good because I'm 33. And so I know the feeling of being corrected and people offering correction. And here's the thing, what I'm also not saying is that correction is somehow always valid. All correction's not valid to the same extent. I'm a, a loving example. I'm gonna use Mark as a loving example from a few weeks ago, right? Mark, I, I used some Greek breakdowns a couple of weeks ago. Mark, don't, don't trip, it's great, it's a great example. And because this man is a humble, godly man, I can use him as an example. He gave me uh, some feedback on some Greek stuff that I had worked out. And the thing was, is that the, on face value, what he was saying was true. But I knew I had done some work, and I also knew that I really liked the point that I was making. And not only did I like the point I was making, but I thought the point I was making was, was the right point. And so we had a little email exchange, and I showed him the work that I had done. I showed him my work. Again, earning trust, and earning trust is okay, too. You're not entitled to trust. We all earn trust. Right? I sent him over that work, and he was like, fair, all right, sounds good. You could, and then he just said, you could imagine when I was looking down without some of this backdrop, me being like, that doesn't seem right until it, it required a little more explanation. And that's great. I like that sense of accountability. That's a healthy thing. There'd probably be more healthy leaders if they were under the same scrutiny that, that young men are under as they get older to recognize that age is an indication of trust but that building trust is an indication of trust. You know, so like, it, that'd be probably good for everybody. I'm a fan of that, thank you, Mark. He didn't do it because he is haughty and prideful, did it because he loves the body and wanted to make sure I wasn't saying something wrong to y'all. So here's the thing, that happens, okay? We, we feel it, we don't like it at times. One last thing about it, actually, um, is that the last thing I'll say about correction is correction oftentimes is best done in the context of intimacy. Right? A couple of things we oftentimes indict people on is that they oftentimes, or that at its worst, people try to give correction when they're not in the space of intimacy. And that does hurt. That does hurt. And it's appropriate to keep people accountable. Like, you shouldn't just be popping off being like, yo, you, I barely know you, but you're doing this wrong. Ain't no one trying to hear that. Ain't no one trying to hear it. See, that's actually literally why the guy on the Everest commercial was like, how do I talk to people in a way they'll understand? I should act like their friend. Right, because he was like, maybe if I, you feel like intimate with me in some way, you'll listen to me. It literally is even in his mind. He ain't a believer at all. I shouldn't say that. I don't. No, he ain't a believer. Anyway, um, so so it, it should happen there. But I think there's another inverse reality to that that we have to consider, which is that if in your life you're not intimate enough with anybody to be corrected, you also have it wrong. If in your life you're not intimate enough with anybody for them to look and say, this is a concern, then your relationships are not healthy. You're not in that place with someone enough to be there, and that's concerning. Because you should be. And if you're not, you're not safe. You're vulnerable, friend. You're vulnerable. Because it means you have blind spots everywhere and absolutely no one there to see them with you. 
Here's the thing, if you are struggling with correction, one suggestion for you, there's a ton of suggestions that we probably could make, but I have one that I wanna give you, uh, which is if you're struggling with that, I wanna encourage you to create some separation between what you do and your worth and value. Just create some separation between those things. I had originally written down, create some separation between what you do and who you are, but I don't think that's true because what you do does show a lot of who you are. If you lie a lot, friend, you're a liar. If you hurt people, you're probably a jerk. If you are consistently late, brother, you are Mexican. So, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> sister, you are also Mexican, okay? So, so it's not fair. And I can't say what you do is not who you are, because that's not true. But here's the thing. Even who you are in the beautiful structure of God's kingdom also does not dictate your worth of value. Because we follow an upside down king that takes the cross for liars and thieves. He doesn't do it so that those who are good can come. He comes and says, I've, this, the sick need a doctor. That's who I've, I've come to seek and save the lost. So while I don't think that you should separate what you do from who you are, because what you do oftentimes does show a lot of who you are, you can separate what you do and what you're worth. You can identify the fact that in the midst of my failures, God has seen me and known me. And he's seen me, know me, and still loves me. I'm still valuable, I'm still cared for, right? You can do that. So if you're struggling with correction, it may have to do a lot with the fact that you have very little space between what you do and your worth and value. And so correction feels like a huge indictment, not just on you as some intellectual or you as a mom or a dad or whatever it is or an employee, but it's, it hits you in your value, right? Like I'm, what I'm worth, your correction means I'm not worth as much. So try to create a little bit of space between those things. Now, oh man. So, what is the difference between milk and food as well? So, if lazy individuals who struggle to be corrected are individuals that are on milk and not solids, what does that mean? Well, I think we know what it literally means, but what does it mean in this context, in this spiritual way? Well, that's what 13 and 14 can continue to communicate. Hebrews 13 and 14 say this, now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness. And I want you to really cling on to that because we're gonna come back to that in a minute. The message of righteousness. So kind of circle that and think about, this is important. The inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. Verse 14, but solid food is for mature, is for the mature. Those uh, whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So solid versus milk is really the internalization of the truths of God that allow our consciousness or our mind to tell the difference between good and evil, godly and not godly. And here's the thing, that, that is actually a little bit tricky if I'm being honest with you. I've, I've said this a lot, that like there's a godly way of walking an old lady across the street and there's an ungodly way of walking an old lady across the street. There's a way that says, here's an elder that I want to protect. And if no one sees me, it's okay. I'm gonna walk her across the street. And then there's the other cat that's like, there's this really hot girl next to me and there's this old lady. And I know the best way to get the attention of this hot girl. 
Two very different things. There's the good thing, yes, which is walking the old lady across the street, but godliness oftentimes lies in the intention of the heart. That's why Jesus spends literally the first part of his sermon being like, here's what you've been said on face value of what you do, murder, stealing, lying, but I say in the heart is what matters, right? And so it's really understanding that our heart and engaging godliness from the perspective of the heart and judging ourselves from that measure, right? That, that's tricky. That, that is quite tricky. It's hard. How do we do that then? How do we do that? Well, uh, in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, the author continues on, and I think he, he or she breaks that down a little bit because they continue on from there to say, chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. We will do this if God permits. Now, pause here again. A lot of challenging stuff happening here. It could, the author continues, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Now, what does that mean? That sounds dangerous. If I'm being honest, if I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading it at face value and I see someone say, let's just go ahead and leave the basic stuff about Jesus behind. Uh, my pastor uh, censors start being like, danger, Will Robinson, danger, right? Like, start being like, no, nah, slow down. See, I'm a nerd. Even that's, that's not culturally appropriate to me. That's only white people stuff, and I knew it greatly. All right, so danger, Will Robinson, danger. Um, my censors are going off. It's like, hey, What's, what do you mean by that? So very, very extraordinarily important is that this Greek verb is connected to the other Greek verb right next to it, which is to go on. And it's really just the connection of saying, why don't we learn this, establish it, and from there turn our attention to the next set of ideas that we want to learn. What it doesn't mean is we leave them behind as though they're not necessary, because that's not what it's communicating. It's not what it's trying to say. It's saying we don't relearn something over and over again. I've said this to y'all before, you don't watch episode one, season one, and over and over again. You watch episode season one, and then you move on with the show. And as you move on with the show, they drop dimes from episode season one, and you're like, I remember that. Like, I remember when, uh, never mind, I ain't gonna do that. Um, but that's how the progression works. And it doesn't mean you leave it all behind, you cling to it. In fact, let's just look at some of the stuff that, that is being said to, to be left behind in order to pursue the other mature subjects, right? It, you think about some of them, repentance from dead works. I mean, we have to repent nor regularly. This is specifically talking about paganism and going back to, to, to Judaism. And literally, these individuals that are Christians are tempted to go back to Judaism. And so he's letting them know, repent, dude. Jesus is worthy. He's exalted. He's the great high priest. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than angels. He's the, the best kind of priest you could possibly have. He's atoned for your sins. He's brought you into the kingdom. He sits at the right hand of God, and he's going to reign forever, and he's going to help you reign forever. Stick to him. Praise God, dude. That's amazing. That's incredible. And so he has to come back to mature believers, people who are growing, people who have been believers for a while, and say, turn away. Come back to faith. But there's also the resurrection from the dead right? That should be an encouraging thing that we cling to. Why? Because it means that in the midst of your suffering, there is hope for you. Why is there hope for you? Because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, death has lost its sting. Every moment of suffering will one day give way to victory. 
because as you close your eyes, you will be with the Lord. And when he returns, he will raise every single follower of his, every daughter and every son to life and wholeness and fullness. And it is the ultimate declaration that evil and corruption have not won. Praise God. And the resurrection's amazing. And eternal judgment. What that means, like the judgment at the end of days when Jesus returns and he judges everything, that is an incredible testimony that injustice will not win. That when evil and corruption and injustice seem like they permeate the world around us and we can never escape it, there is a promise that Jesus will return and in his return, he will judge the world and he will make it right. That's incredible news. These are all things that we should cling to, we should hold on to, So they're not things that we leave behind and we never come back to. But what the author is saying is it's important for us to understand and internalize those things, accept them, make them a part of how we live our lives, cling to them, know them deeply, but also to continue on in learning about who God is. Also to grow our faith and understanding the deity of Jesus. I mean, like, you, there's so much in terms of, like, the early church had to fight vehemently to make sure that they, like, fought to say Jesus is God. He's fully God. Like, the first couple hundred years of church history are basically them being like, let's fight. And it's not like, let's fight because we're a part of Fight Club. It, it's like, let's fight because there's something worth fighting for here. And it, it's the truth of who Jesus is. The truth that the word became flesh and that word was Jesus and he existed forever. And because he existed forever, he's always been, he was not created. He was a part of the creation in that he was a part of the creative order. He created stuff as, as, as the word of God and now he reigns. And it was that very word, God himself, that entered into the story of the incarnation. These are beautiful ideas that, that we sometimes forget. Even at the beginning of the sermon series, My man lays down, or my woman, whatever, lays down the gauntlet of being like, but Jesus is human. And Jesus, as a result, in his ascension and sitting at the right hand is the beautiful testimony that a human now represents us. And it's through that humanity that he can actually relate to our weaknesses. And it's from that relation of weaknesses that he suffers alongside of us and that he's gentle with us. And it's like, man, amen. Like, man, there's so much to be had here, friend. So much. And the author of Hebrews is saying, let's settle on some of these things so that you're not consistently going back to say, I need to get saved again. I need to get baptized again. No, you don't. You are saved. You've been baptized. That's why a lot of our baptism numbers ain't what some of the the other church plants we know are, because I've had meetings with some of y'all, and it's like, have you been baptized? Yes? Great. We're sticking with that one. Well, I'm not going to rebaptize you for the ninth time. We're not going to do that. You got dunked? Great. Let's stick with that. And I'm glad that that moment wherein you unified your life to the death and resurrection of the son has led you to the moment just sitting down with me saying, I'm trying my best to follow him again. It meant that what happened that day was not for naught. In fact, it's still birthing fruit today as I'm talking to you. Praise the Lamb. Praise God. So we don't just dwell on these things, trying to get saved over and over again, but we establish them, we learn them, we internalize them, we move on to learning more and more about who Christ is. And here's the thing, friend. This isn't just important for us. It's not just important because God wants you to be moral or he wants you to somehow be a better person. 
This is also a part of God's vision for restoring the world through you and through me. How so? Well, let's go back briefly and look at something I said was really important that I needed you to just bookmark real quick. In Hebrews 5.13, going back to the previous chapter, the author says, now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness. Inexperienced with the message about righteousness. All right, let's do some, let's gauge if you're reading this all right. Who is inexperienced when it comes to the message about righteousness? The babies, the individuals that live on milk. And so the individuals that live on milk, they live on milk and they're babies because why? All right, all right, we're getting there, we're getting there. Let's do that again. So those that are inexperienced with the message about righteousness are the mature or the immature? And they're immature, why? Because, good, the immature are immature because they are inexperienced with the message about righteousness. That's why, because they're inexperienced with it. That's what makes them immature. And, and, and there's a consequence to that. And here's the thing, this is where people have written a lot of fun books about this. I'm not going to nerd out too hard, but I will nerd out a little bit here. This is one of the key verses to what's described as missions in the book of Hebrews. Missions in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews does not seem like a missions-oriented book. It doesn't seem like the kind of book where you see people like going out to like, I'm going to go evangelize. It seems like the kind of book where the author got to be like, dude, don't not be a Christian. Fight on. Here's some encouragement. That's what it feels like. But there's a big thread in the theological community of people who have written books about how emphatic missions are in the book of Hebrews. And this is one of those verses why you might be saying it's because of the word righteousness. Uh, The word righteousness, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to butcher this. Dikaiosine. Dikaiosine. Dikaiosune. Oh, it's just one syllable. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Thank you. And here's what's great about this, is that this particular word isn't just the idea of morality. It's not just the idea of saying, hey, those that are inexperienced with the word of how to be a good person are milk. They are immature. They live off of milk. If that was the word, then it would be really simple and really straightforward because it would just be, hey, be a better person, right? Get mature. Be a better person. Move from milk to solids. But that's actually not the inherent word of the media. It's not what it communicates. The actual word righteousness throughout uh, its use in ancient Greece is more equated to the idea of justice, equity, and fairness. In fact, multiple uh, translators, uh, N.T. Wright among them, I really enjoyed how he broke this down, have translated it instead of the word of righteousness by saying, now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about justice. That's how they've explained or how some have translated it. And so what does that mean? What does it mean? It means that the world can't be helped by someone that has to keep going back to say, can I be forgiven again? It means that someone that thinks they have to be resaved every three weeks, someone that's not grabbing on to the beauty of uh, the gospel and isn't being shaped and molded by God's heart for the world, 
oftentimes is also unable to go out and impact the world in a way that produces justice, equity, and fairness because your, your, your world and your eyes are so set on you that you have very little ability to set them on anyone else. Right? That you're invited not just to say, hey, what is my faith about? My faith is about being a better person. I lovingly want to tell you, kind of, a bit. Our faith is really about the best person and the best person making and renewing the world through broken people that he has saved and is sending into the world. That's what our faith is actually about. It's about the idea of God renewing and recreating the world by taking broken people, bringing them to himself, restoring them, recreating them, and then sending them into the world to take dominion of the world for goodness, righteousness, justice, and beauty. That's the vision of the Bible. That's what the Bible wants from you and me. And so when we find ourselves in a loop, in a cycle, we're basically being like, I messed up today. And then we go, I hope God can forgive me, but I'm ashamed, and so I'm going to hide from God. And then I'm going to go, okay, I'm getting better. I'm trying really hard again. And then we go, like, full-on Eeyore, and you're like, I failed. I hope God can forgive me. I'm going to hide from God. I'm doing better. I failed. <laughs> right? Like, it's like, dog. Oh, okay, dude. Like, as your pastor, I want to tell you, I love that you are vulnerable enough to share that you failed. I also wanna encourage you that the vision God has for you in your life is not singularly rooted on you being perfect in any given moment. If it ever was, he would have never came. But it never was, so he came. And because of that, the grace that abounds to you is one that empowers you, that forgives you and restores you, but then from there empowers you to be sent into the world to make a difference and impact in the world. And if all you can do in your life is reflect on how you failed, hide from God, come back and say, I'm sorry, I hope I can get better. And that's the wholeness, the, the, the complete, like that's the completion of your faith. Friend, you're missing a well of different things. There are people in your world that desperately need you, that, des that God made you explicitly to care for, to empower, to impact, and his desire is to forgive, restore, and redeem, and then send you into those very places to love and serve those people. You're not gonna do it perfectly. I repeat, you're not going to do it perfectly. You are going to fumble that ball. You are gonna fumble that ball. You're gonna lose a few battles, and you're gonna find yourself being like, man, I messed up. But the reality is, you were never the one God depended on to win the game anyway, so that's fine. Get up and keep playing. Keep playing the game. You have the winning coach. You have the winning quarterback. Your job is to run the play. Run the play. Don't go to the sideline and be like, I'm not ready yet. I'm messing up. I'm, I failed. Get in the game. Run the play. You're with the, you're with the Tom Brady of, that was a weird one, sorry. But you're with the Tom Brady equivalent in terms of the goaded ones, all right? That's not good either because he's way better than Tom Brady. But you're with the winner, right? That's the vision here. It's saying, hey, let, I understand that you're, you're, it's challenging. I understand it, it hits on the values that you have and it makes you sad. Man, but, but that's not. Look to Jesus, be forgiven, grow 
in maturity by, by submitting to him, being forgiven, being renewed, and being sent out. You're gonna fail, you're gonna stumble. Things are gonna go wrong, you're gonna make mistakes. All that's gonna happen. Gain a vision of who he is and be sent into the world on mission to bring justice and equity and love and beauty into the world. Man, if you can do a rhythm of that right there, you'll, you'll, be, really, you'll be doing really well. So with that being said, last thing I wanna just go over is how do we grow in this way? How do we grow in this way? Well, here's the thing. As a church, uh, we're passionate about seeing your uh, faith grow. You grow in your faith. Um, we want to see you establish solid foundations and grow into maturity. As a result, here's our response to that, is that we're launching a new discipleship ministry here at Refuge that's entitled Cultivate. Now, Cultivate is a ministry at Refuge focused on cultivating our faith in the context of intentional community. How do we do this? We do this through three-month commitments to deep community and accountability with a small group of two to four people that follow provided resources that strengthen your faith. Now, it starts with our whole discipleship ministry starts with a class called Cultivate 101. That class is simply meant to help you understand biblical community and biblical mentorship and to give you space to connect with others that you may be spending the next three months walking alongside of. Next is a three-month commitment uh, to your group where you find time to meet together regularly, set up plans to check in on each other, and you make a personal commitment to these other individuals, again, for three months. After that, the last thing we decide on is your track. There are currently, um, well, before that, tracks are basically uh, study plans prepared for you with like ready-to-use resources. And so right now we have three tracks. Uh, that are currently available as of today, which is our foundations track. It provides resources to help build foundations in the context of that, those relationships. An intimacy track where we're really focused on the person of Jesus and learning how to connect with Jesus, spend time with Jesus. And then a personal growth track where we're really trying to understand how do we grow our faith um, just on the walk of, of, of life, right? So that you're not sitting here dependent on coming here and hearing a sermon to grow in your faith, but you're actively per growing on a personal level regularly. With uh, more to come in the future, we'd love to have more of those, but those are the three that are available right now. Uh, and this is where we envision you growing with family in some of the most profound and powerful ways. Now, to learn more about this, we have it laid out on the website under resources. You just click cultivate and it explains a little bit of what uh, I said. However, right, if you're like, I like that, that sounds great. Uh, then on March 8th, uh, we're gonna have our first Cultivate 101 class uh, which is going to be taking place at my house. And again, that class is really just the place where we start by laying a biblical foundation for community and accountability. And we, we start to kind of build out this idea of here's what you can expect um, for this, this time together. And so this is our response to really this idea of saying, hey, I want to learn more about who Jesus is. I want to build my faith. Well, we want to provide you the space to do that but kind of similar to a lot of the other things we do, we think that happens in the context of community. Like, I, I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that, like, Jesus moves in the context of people following him together, that that's how it happens. And so we've specifically set up a place for you to build those relationships and intentionally commit to them for three months. That doesn't mean that you have to do it every three months. Let's say this year you do one round of Cultivate with three months and you do one of those tracks. That's great. Take a break, do another one next year do another one later on this year, right? But this is a space where we're intentionally saying we wanna build your faith. We wanna see you build your faith, but we wanna do it in the context of you spending time together.
I don't want to have some class where I know you ain't, you, let's be real. Life happens. I gave announcements today. Um, and it's like, realistically, you're going to miss one or two of the classes. You're going to be like, can I have the notes? You ain't looking at no notes. You know you ain't finna look at them notes. All right? That happens. We don't want to do it like that. We want to do it in the context of building intimate, personal relationships that God works through in order to build your faith, build the foundations of your faith, build intimacy with Jesus, and help you learn how to follow Jesus um, on a day-to-day basis. So that's what we want to do, right? That's what we're launching. Starting on March 8th, we're starting with that class. If you want to be involved, I encourage you to register. You better register, though, or else you ain't going to eat, because that my class in the evening. And if you don't sign up, I'm going to be up there, like, checking that list. If you ain't on there, you ain't getting whatever we eating, all right? I'm sorry. All right? I'll give you a little bit of mine, but not that much, all right? You see me, all right? You know I ain't giving you that much. So with that being said, that's our hope, right? Our hope is that we would respond to, to this idea of saying, hey, let's not, let's not be lazy, right? There's not just a, a moral, like a morality police that's looking at us going, don't be lazy, let's learn and grow in our faith. But there is truly a world around us that is in deep need for us to, to set aside or, or to leave, uh, to set our attention away from the basics of our faith and move on to maturity, to growth, and, and to really like asking God, what are you calling me to? How are you calling me to live in the context of my work, my job, my family, um, my household, my community? We want to empower that. Um, I don't know how to say this, and, and I'm already behind, so I'm just going to say it like this. I, I, I believe in like what we're doing. I believe in it. I aggressively believe in it. I obnoxiously believe in it. Let's say it like that. And as a result, I'm, we're going to fight to put you in a position where you are empowered to live out uh, the vision we have as a church to see our community shaped by the love of Jesus. I want that to start in your life, and then it's going to start in your home, and then I want it to start in your neighbor's house through you. And I don't want you to just be like, I'll invite some people. I hope that you become Jesus in your neighbor's house. I hope that you become Jesus in your block, in your neighborhood, whatever the case is. And people are like, man, my life is changed, not because someone was like, let's get the morality police out on you, but because you legitimately came out and showed someone deep love that made their life different. If we can get there, even as a, a group this size, this ain't even everybody, but if we just get us that are here today, I promise you that's a huge impact in, in the life of those around you. So let's do that together. Let's place it in God's hands as, as the author of Hebrews says, Lord, allow it. We'll put it in his hands, and I want to invite you on that journey with us. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you the, for the mystery of who you are. There's so much there uh, that, that really isn't even trying to be addressed in this chapter, but really is a, being alluded to, the beauty of your mission and your vision and the beauty of what you're doing in the world and what you came to do in the world and, and how you're forgiving, restoring us in order to send us into the our, our world for the renewal of our world. And so thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we are not left in a place uh, of ignorance and we're not left in a place of a cyclical act like asking for forgiveness, but we are invited into a, a new world and a project that you're building through your goodness and through your grace. I love you. Help us uh, to live in that space. Help us to live in that, in that place of your mercy and your grace, not not feeling like we're in a cycle of, of abusing it, but rather allowing your grace to empower us into the mission you have for us. So I love you. I thank you. 
Or we, we place these things in your hands. We place our life and our faith in your hands. Um, help us, uh, God permit, um, to grow and, and pursue you. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.